three things to tell you about. Three. Uh, number one is the, so Austin, the guy that plays drums, did the wood artwork on the wall. But all of the paintings, we had this idea to ask e-families, whether it's either volunteer or the kids, to paint the, all the paintings on the wall. So that's actually e-families paintings that they did. So Yeah, need to cool. All right. Uh, second thing, as you guys have been asking for a while, if we when we're going to get some more stickers for cars, the relief stickers that look like this. So this is like the back of my truck. This is my wife's car, right there. So they look like this. So we've got some. We've done this before, where we had the place they they cut them and then we weeded all the stuff out and put the stuff over the top. We decided not to do that because it's a pain in the rear end. So we had somebody make these for us this time. And so if you want one of these, they're five bucks. Okay, we're not like making money on them or anything, but they're like five bucks. You can put them on your car. If you put it on your car, here's the deal. You can no longer drive like a moron. <laughs> there is a reason I thought long and hard before I stuck it on my truck. Because I drive like an idiot. And I'm like, I can't do it anymore. You pull up to a roundabout. Yes, Nobody knows how to use a roundabout, and they all want to cause an accident, but you've got to go in with grace now, okay? You put it on the back. So you can support element. Just do it with grace. I'll be watching as I cut you off. <laughs> and the third thing is that, as Sarah's mentioning, uh, Element University does start this Wednesday night at 6 p.m., there's uh, children's programs available for it, and all that we really kind of go through in the book of Acts right now, you're going to get a lot of the backstory about how Paul and the original apostles understood the good news of the gospel. Uh, you're going to kind of start all the way back in the book of Genesis as they walk through that to all the understanding of the New Testament and how they began to speak about what the gospel is out into the world. I was in Israel a couple weeks ago, and i got to say, we don't really understand a lot of the history and backstory. We think we do, but we don't. And part of this is going to help you understand that history and heritage of what the gospel truly means in the world so we can begin to live it out in ways that make sense. So I'd encourage you to come starting this Wednesday night. It's nine weeks long. After that, you can go back to whatever you're doing before. Hopefully changed and better because you understand the gospel better. But give us nine weeks and it'll be great. If you're new to Element, welcome. Uh, there are Bibles in the seat backs in front of you. If you don't own one, you can have one. If you forgot one, you can use one. There are sermon notes and all the communion tables around the room look like this. And on these sermon notes, they're a bit different than we usually do them in the past. Is We have a big idea of what we're going to cover. Then under that, there's some questions that reflect and go into what that big idea actually is and means. If you have a smartphone, you can download an app. It's called Uversion. Once you download it, it just says Bible. And then you can open that, and inside that, you click on More and Events. We will come up by GPS in your smartphone, and you will get sermon notes, verses, questions, and announcements, and all that goes with today's message. My name is Aaron. I'm one of the pastors here. Why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? This is Acts chapter 13, verse 43. It says, and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, I ask that for us today, that we would be a people who continue in the grace of God, that we would understand what it means, your rescue and redemption of us, and that as we begin to live out our lives, we'd be witnesses for you in the world in which we are today, that we would be able to make sense of what the gospel is to those around us because we understand it, and that you would lead us in all those ways to understanding more greatly who you are and what you have done. Amen. Have a seat. 
<clears throat> so this is, we're calling this the book of Acts part two. Uh, we did part one about four years ago. Part one focused on chapters one through 12. Part two is doing chapter 13 through the end of the book. Uh, this is week four. It feels like week one because I've been gone for a couple weeks. And last week I was here, but I wasn't really here. I was jet lagged and sick. I'm still sick, but not jet lagged anymore. So if you've been new in the last couple weeks, hello, my name is Aaron. Nice to see you. It's great. Uh, if you like listening to your podcast at single speed, uh, now it's going to be double speed. So if Steve was single, I'm like double. That's just how it works. I talk fast. Uh, I'm going to, as we head in this message, I want you to understand that I wrote my messages before anybody else wrote theirs. So if I say something that sounds like something Steve has already said, great. It just means I'm smart because he's smart. So there we go. Uh, one of the things the book of Acts does is it shows us how the apostles took the message of God's good news to the ends of the known world. It's important for us to understand, too, the difference when we talk about disciples and apostles. Because a disciple learns, wants to become like their teacher. We are people who should always be disciples of what God is doing in our lives. We've been discipling one another, disciples of God himself. And then, But an apostle, then, is someone who is sent out. The word literally means one who is sent. In Acts 13, we start to follow the apostleship of a man named Paul, who up to this point was known as Saul. Up until chapter 13, the main protagonist of the story so far has been a guy named Peter. And now, after, after this, he disappears almost altogether. And now you follow a guy named Paul and Barnabas. They take center stage. And this is kind of the idea, that God's spirit didn't just work through a Peter. God didn't just work through a Paul. God didn't just work through a Barnabas. God still works through us today. God still works through Aaron's and Steve's and, and Michael's and, and Joseph's and Kelly's. And he works through all of us. He continues to work today. And so Paul used to be this guy known as Saul. And in chapter 13, verse 13, it switches and Paul will only be called from Paul from here on out. Because now Paul is going into the greater Greco-Roman world. And Paul makes much more sense than Saul to the world around them. Kind of like today. When read the Bible, we read the word Jesus, like J for Jesus. If you go to Israel, they still say Yeshua, but we say J for Jesus because that's how we read it, and we're like Americans, so people should do it our way, so we just say J, but in, in the rest of the world, they still say Yeshua, but so Paul goes out to make the message more known. He starts to be called by a name that people would understand better. If you ever gotten bored in church and you flip to a back of a Bible, you'll get to some maps that are in the back of that. And you'll get to these things called Paul's missionary journeys, like first missionary journey, second missionary journey, third missionary journey. And what we're looking at in Acts 13 is the beginning of Paul's first missionary journey. Uh, this is a picture of what it looks like. Now, if you look over there on the right, Paul is going to start in this place called Antioch. This is Antioch in Syria, where Paul ends up giving the message he's going to today is over here, and there's another Antioch, and it's up in this place called Poseidia. There's different Antiochs, and in a couple weeks, I'll explain why. It's a funny story, but I don't have time today. I've got too much other stuff to get through. So this is what's going to happen, how Paul gets to Antioch and Poseidia. So Acts 13, if you're there, going to start in verse 13. Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. This is where they still make all the pamphlets today, in case you didn't know that. 
I had to explain that in first service. I don't know why. Anyway, and, and John left. It's a joke if you don't know. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, Steve talked about this last week a bit, that in these synagogues, if there is a visiting rabbi or teacher who would come in, they would say, hey, do you have a word for the people? We don't do that today because too many people are on the internet and are just weirdos and you're welcome. All right, we don't want to be just go, hey, I want to share. No, it's not happening. Okay, so they did that there. And so I want to walk you through today is these words of encouragement that is a sermon that Paul gives to these people. And I want you to understand the direction of the book of Acts. In Acts, everything is going to speak about the gospel, the good news of Jesus in an understandable way to the people that those are giving, who are giving the message to who they're talking to. They want to do it in a way that they understand the audience that is around them. Now, Antioch in Syria is becoming the center of the church in the Greek world. Uh, many Greek-speaking Jews and Gentiles start to look to Antioch as the center for their guidance, not to Jerusalem anymore. And it's kind of like how our culture begins to shift to different things. We used to look at encyclopedias, right? But now we look at the internet and Wikipedia, which isn't better. But Antioch is much better than Wikipedia, just saying that. So Paul and Barnabas start there in Antioch in Syria. They put on their hiking sandals, and they start to spread the gospel speaking of Jesus. And as you hear Paul's words of how he speaks to different people, you're going to get this great idea of who he, see, he sees Jesus as. I mean, for Paul, he has this posture that he wants to speak the gospel in any context that he is in in a way that is understandable to his audience. In the verses we look at today, Paul is going to speak to, G, uh, to Jews about Jesus in the context of their history and understanding that has been handed down to them. Next week, you'll see the beginnings of how Paul starts to speak to Gentiles. Well, have you even look a little bit at Acts chapter 17 next week and how Paul goes into Athens and he doesn't even quote any words of Jesus there. He just quotes their own philosophers and poets, but he does it in a way to bring them back to a spot where they could talk about God and the understanding of the gospel and what Jesus did to rescue them where they were. Wherever Paul goes, he wants to speak to people in a way that the gospel makes sense of their lives. Paul does not go into places and talk about his moral compass. He doesn't go in and lift up his political candidates for reform. He doesn't even attack people's blatant sins. And throughout the book of Acts, you will see lots of blatant sins. But he starts in a place of understanding where people are in relation to their biggest need. And that is rescue and redemption of what God is doing in our lives. And so when he starts to talk to Jews, he will say, Jesus is the fulfillment of all the scriptures. He is the God of your forefathers. He is the Messiah and the hope for the restoration of God's grace. He is the reason you gather every week in these synagogues, week after week, and he's going to speak so it makes sense to them. So Acts 13, starting in verse 16, says, so Paul stood up and motioning with his hand, there's going to be a lot of verses I'm going through today, so, so bear with me. This is Paul's sermon. It's a sermon inside my sermon. So it's like that movie Inception. I'm incepting you. Here we go. Men of Israel, and you here fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. This is the redemption story. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And 
And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for forty years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John, that's John the baptizer, had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, but no, behold, no, but behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So keep your place in Acts 13. I want you to flip over to Exodus chapter 1. For the Hebrews... Paul is talking to these people who know the history of this story. And Paul starts where their identity starts, their rescue from slavery in Egypt. This is known as a thing called the Exodus. The Exodus is recounted in this book called the Exodus because they're very creative like that. Exodus happens after the book of Genesis, after mankind's rebellion against God has brought broken relationship with God and one another where sin comes into the world. And a lot of people believe that Genesis is the backstory to get you to Exodus to understand the liberation of the book of Exodus. And element you, we will start in the book of Genesis to get you to that place of understanding what Exodus really means. So in Exodus though, well actually by the end of the book of Genesis, there's this great famine of all these Israelite people and they're getting ready to starve and die. They are then given an allotment of land in the area of Egypt so they could survive. This allotment of land happened because of a man named Joseph. This guy named Joseph honored God and in so doing saved many people from starvation in Egypt. And in saving those people from starvation in Egypt, they gave him a very high position. And in doing that, he's able to bring his people down, these Israelites, into Egypt in order to save them. Now, the book of Exodus will start 400 years after the time of Joseph. In Exodus, what you see is that thing called sin that starts in the book of Genesis. What happened when mankind first ran away from God has come full circle, and it's now oppressing the children of Israel. The Israelites are people you read throughout the scriptures who have sinned against others. And in Exodus, you'll see this thing called sin is not just one person against another anymore. It's a whole system that is weighing down upon this people. And the writer of Exodus wants you to see that the Israelites are not just dealing with one person in sin, but there is this whole giant system on top of them now. So Exodus 1, verse 1 goes like this. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And then you'll read a whole bunch of names. It's like reading the phone book. It's not that interesting. Go to verse Then Joseph died, and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king, and this would be a new kingdom, over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us, because God blessed them in that place. Go to verse 11. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. The NIV will translate it like this. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. Let me give you this idea in our modern vernacular. They turned them into slaves to build storehouses so the Egyptians could become wealthier. They found these people they could exploit to make goods cheaper for them so they could live in more comfort. Ooh, that hits a little more close to home, right? These Israelites are a people at this point who may have even forgotten who God is and what he has done. But what they do in this place of despair is they start to cry out. 
They cry out in the midst of their pain, in the midst of their bondage to this sin. And many people today see the central idea of these slaves crying out for freedom as a central part of who the Jewish people later became. And today we get to see it as part of our own redemption and salvation. So go to Exodus chapter 3. They cry out where they are in this pain. Exodus chapter 3 verse 7, what then happens? says this, Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who were in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. So who hears the cry? You're in church. Yeah, it's one or two answers. There you go. God. Okay, you're good. You're right. Jesus. Yeah, same thing. All right. And he says, he says, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Verse 9, and now behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh. And the you he's talking to is a guy named Moses, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt, out of slavery, out of bondage. And that is that key scripture in Israelite history and ours, if you're a believer in Jesus. God says, I have heard the cry, you will bring them out. They are in bondage to sin. I am going to send a redeemer to pull these people out of slavery. This is central to understanding who God is and how he works in the world. The story starts with slavery and bondage. And God says, I am going to do something about that oppression. I am going to send a redeemer. We are a people today whose personal sins and corporate sins has affected all of our lives. It brings shame. It destroys relationships because we can't even function in the world in a way that doesn't see the world without a sin lens over it. Every time somebody says something to us, we want to take it critically. We think everyone is always out to get us. Every time we respond to somebody else, like, how dare they get ahead of me? And we always have this sin lens because we're all, you ever, if you're married, you get in a fight with your spouse. It's like, how dare they say that? You have a sin lens over it because you're thinking everything they do is somehow there to hurt you. That's a sin lens. We have it over every single part of our lives. And Egypt becomes this metaphor that Scripture came to use as symbolizing what was opposed to the kingdom of God because of Israel's harsh treatment in that place. How we are or we were slaves to sin. We cannot get away on our own. How we had to be redeemed and restored and rescued and brought out. We needed a redeemer. Now go to Exodus chapter 19. Okay? God comes, hears the cry, God sets them free, and he's going to bring them to a place of promise. And as he's doing that, he leads them to this place called Sinai. It's a mountain on their journey. This is part of the 40 years that Paul talks about in his sermon. At this mountain, God will speak to them. They will receive this thing called the Ten Commandments, and God will remind them who they were meant to be, his image bearers in the world. At this mountain at Sinai, we are told, Exodus 19, verse 3, says, while Moses went up to God, says the Lord, and that is Yahweh, God's personal name, called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So what God does is who he reminds them who they were meant to be. He calls them back to his original intent that they'd be a blessing to the world. God says, when you were in Egypt, I rescued you, I redeemed you, I brought you out. And now the point isn't to walk around and say, oh, I'm saved. God brought me out of Egypt. How great is that? God says, I now actually have someone for you to be. 
He says, you, will, you shall be to me, that's the word for, you shall be for me, a kingdom of priests. God has a mission and an identity for these people to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And the awesome thing is he still has that for us today. Now, I've asked you this before and explained this, of of what is a priest? A priest is meant to put the divine on display. If you went into a temple in the ancient world, there'd be a priest of that temple. How would you know what the God was like of that temple that that priest was there to worship? Well, you look at the priest. Uh, how they ate, how they lived, how they moved, how they slept, how they interact with people around them. The priests would put their God on display. It shows the divinity that their God is. A good way to look at this today is uh, think about the music industry. Right? I think every person involved in the music industry is a priest of whatever they worship. They've got a lot of rappers. What is it? Money. Woo, dollar bills. Right? You know, it's, it, they're worshiping money. Uh, Snoop Dogg, what's he a priest of? Weed. It's like... It's like Yes, he's a priest of weed, man. Go to 80s hair bands. What are they priests of? Like sex, drugs, rock and roll. That's that's what they're priests of. Seriously, if, if you have a favorite artist or band, ask yourself, what are they lifting up? What are they a priest of? It's Lady Gaga, it's like Meat Suits and Bradley Cooper. But you know, whatever, it's something. So God, what he is going to do here is he's going to give his people the Ten Commandments. One of them is they're not allowed to make graven images of him. Why? It goes back to the beginning, Genesis chapter 1. We were made to be his image bearers. You shouldn't have to look at a carving or a painting. The world was meant to look at God's people as the image. So in Egypt, God pulls them out of slavery. At Sinai, God tells them that they were not brought out just to walk around the desert and say, we're saved, we're saved, we're saved, let's have a club, let's make a website, woo, let's get this thing called the church and never go outside, woo, it's so great. No, he brought you out to be an entire kingdom of priests. The human condition when they get to Sinai is you've been brought out of bondage, you've been brought out of sin, you've been liberated, and now you're a people that are supposed to live out in the world the original intent I made you to be, God's image bearers. And Moses writes these words so they would never forget again. This becomes this thing called the Torah. And they look back at this and it is so ingrained in who they are as a people. They remember it every single day. Every day they get up and they say Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They remember now every single day before God brought them out much that might have been last. But now they don't and they teach their children. Now they know that God has been moving for a purpose, and he speaks loud of this purpose, the good news, how his kingdom will be made known. And at Sinai, two things are going on. First, his people are being, being invited to come back to relationship with God again. And secondly, they are being invited not just to be saved, but to be the message. Their redemption, their rescue, how they were brought out is the message. They get to be a kingdom of priests. Now go back to Acts chapter 13, okay? where the Jews are that Paul is talking to in a sermon, they know this story because this is their story. They grow up with it every day. So Paul's relating that story. And they say, okay, great. How has that turned out? Horribly. That's how it's turned out because they kept running away from God. All these other nations keep attacking them and taking like, what? This is, this is terrible. And they got to be thinking, why would God limit himself by choosing the people to be the main vehicle of his message? Because if I was God and I wanted you to be the vehicle of who I was, I wouldn't choose you. I'm just being honest. I wouldn't choose me either, okay? But because we are the ones who give Jesus a bad name, how we treat each other. God can write his name in the sky and do tornadoes and earthquakes and storms and cookies and breakfast burritos. God can do all of these things, right? But he decides to use people. 
In Acts chapter 1 and 2, you see that you know, Jesus dies, He rises from the grave, He sends His Spirit, and sends His people out to do this again, to be His message, to be on mission with Him in the world. When the Israelites even come into their own country, when they get their land at the beginning of the book of uh, Joshua and Judges, they're meant to be a beacon of hope for the world to see. They were meant to live differently because God was their king. But what they do is they reject God as king. And they want a human king like every other nation has. That's actually what they say. And Paul reminds them of this. And so this starts with a king named Saul, who is more interested in his own gain than glorifying God. And the kingdom passes to a guy named David, who loves God, but David is just a complete mess. But David, even though he has all these failures and personal sin, he loves God. And he really wants to seek him with all of his heart. And so God promises David, you will have someone from your line that sits on the throne forever. And even when the kingdom falls apart and God pulls these people into bondage, into a place called Babylon, God is still speaking about his restoration and what he will continue to do. He restores, he recalls his people over and over. And this greatest king that they had, David, they all look back and realize all they had lost. And so what does Paul say? Acts 13, verse 23, of this man's offspring, he has brought to Israel a savior, Jesus, as he promised. See, these are words of hope to these people. Paul is talking to these Jews who have been dispersed out into the world. They long for God's redemption. And with Paul's words, they're probably thinking, could I, we really be restored to God's call over us? Could we really be his image bearers? Can we be redeemed? And so Paul continues. uh, Verse 26 of Acts 13. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and the rulers, because they did not recognize him, that's Jesus, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, um, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. That means he died and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up, that's Jesus, did not see corruption. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything uh, from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophet should come about. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you would not believe, even if one tells you. So what Paul says is that Jesus came, and he died in this perishable body as a sacrifice for our many sins, but God raised him from the grave. Jesus lived this perfect life we can never live. And on the cross, we have this thing called the great exchange, our sin for his righteousness, our death for his life. God raises Jesus imperishable in order to restore us to God. It's the idea that our sins and their sins and our failures and their failures and the world's sins don't need to define us any longer because God has brought a righteousness to us that is apart from any law. The message of Paul to these Hebrews, deep heritage in this synagogue, 
tonight is a message of God's good news that they so desperately need to hear, that they have been longing for day after day. And when Paul talks about God's rescue, he does it in a way that highlights three things. Number one is this. He confronts the Jewish people with their God-given destiny, that you were called to be God's image bearers in the world. And yes, we failed over and over and over, but we are called again to be his priests. Paul is speaking to religious people in a synagogue that God is now building a brand new kingdom, not one based on men's works. It's not a Saul kingdom. It's not a David kingdom. It is God's kingdom, and it's based upon his grace and restoration. The second thing he is saying is that we need to live in such a way that we get to become the message here and now. We get to be image bearers. And this is one of the reasons in the scriptures you never see Jesus say, do this, and one day you get to go to a really sweet place. Jesus never talks about this thing called the rapture. You get to ride your donkey down the street and boom, you're gone. Your donkey becomes a missile and takes out the food stand. Oh, how great is that? Jesus never says that. Okay? What you have to, Jesus, Jesus does talk about life after death and, you know, and things about when we die. But Jesus, when he preaches, he says, we live in such a way that we say, Father, your will come to earth as it is done in heaven. First and foremost, Jesus' message, and so Paul's message was not, let's get out of here. It is, you were called to be the image of God in the world around you. You were meant to be God's light to the world. Repent and return to the calling that God gave you. This is what redemption brings. This is the results of the gospel. We get to be God's image bearers again. And the third thing is that the message of salvation and repentance and hope and new life, where Paul goes here, it's directed at people who already claim to know God. And that's very important for us to understand in the church today. Paul speaks to religious people, and he calls them to the true life that God is calling them into, that I think they've really been searching for. They now get to be the people of God, not because they went on a vision quest and found God, but because God found them, because God sought them, because God rescued them. God sent himself as their Redeemer. And so what Paul does is he recounts their story, who they are as a people, because he understands them. How do they respond? Acts 13, verse 42 and 43. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them on the next Sabbath. And next week, we'll look what happens on the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. And this is beautiful. Throughout the book of Acts, this is one of the best responses Paul ever gets. Other times, it doesn't go so well. So take your wins and remember them, because this is a good one right there. See, Jesus calls us even as messed up as we are, to be his ambassadors to the world. We are to represent who he is. The gospel restores us to relationship and position. And I know there's a lot of people who say, but I'm not good enough. i got to figure things out. Well, guys, you have to understand, you're right. You're not good enough, but Jesus is. And that's why he's the one that calls us. That's why our salvation is not based upon our own goodness. That's why Jesus says things in like John 8, 36. If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. See, Jesus wants to rescue all of us, and we get to partake in the building of the kingdom of God, the kind of kingdom that endures and makes a difference in the lives around us. And I love that it's called the kingdom of God, and Jesus promises this king, God promises a king to sit on the throne forever. And what you'll see is after the resurrection, the apostles start speaking of Jesus as king, because who reigns in the kingdom of God? Jesus. Jesus reigns in the kingdom of God. And that's because that would have made so much sense to a Hebrew who is waiting to hear this promised king who has come. I mean, we don't live in a kingdom yet, you know, but we, we, we are people who, who get to understand 
what, what God is doing by reading some of their history. When we understand that Christ and him alone is what we need, that's what Paul is saying. It is Jesus crucified, dead, buried, resurrected, ascended, returning. What we need is Christ our King, and by God's grace, that will, that's what we have. And this is why Paul refers to Jesus coming from David as that eternal king. And I don't know if you can see the similarities to what happened to the Israelites to maybe even your own life. Like how often has God come and he's blessed us with so many things and we've run off and done horrible things with all of God's blessings. Whether it's money or family or a job or friendships or sex or whatever it is. We end up in a place where we destroy all the good things God gives us. And we look back in longing to God's rescue. If I could just go back and God's like, we're not going to go back. I'm going to save you where you are. I'm going to rescue you. And we're going to start to move forward from this place. Guys, we are a people who can never be worthy of God's love because it's not something we can earn. It's something that is given to us. The beauty of the gospel is that God doesn't always take away the consequences of our dumb actions, but he does redeem them because he redeems us. Again, we will never be worthy of God's love because God's love is not something that we can earn. It is what Jesus gives to us by his own merit. And this is why those Jews who heard that message at Antioch were excited. Because Paul spoke to their greatest need and desire. And it's what Jesus brings. And it's not the story of God saving one individual. It is God saving all of us and sending us all out on mission with him. I love how Jesus likens uh, God the Father to a father who stands in the driveway with his arms open saying, Come home to mission and identity and hope and grace and renewed life. We are a people. Because of what God has done, hearing our cry to rescue us, get to come home to Jesus. We get to be restored and redeemed to be his image bearers in the world because of what he has done. This is the beauty of what the gospel brings. And yes, Paul speaks to it to these Hebrew people, and I'm just barely scratching the surface of what they understood and what their hearts longed and yearned for. But I think if we kind of get the understanding of that a bit, I think it could open up our own hearts as well to understand how God comes to us in our own personal Egypts, whatever they are, where we have been oppressed and we have been crying out, and God comes to rescue us. I think what we have to understand is that when God comes to rescue the Israelites, when they cry out, it wasn't the next day that Moses shows up. It's a couple years later and Moses finally gets It's not that God didn't hear and God didn't care. God is working. He's doing something in the midst of our waiting. And yes, our greatest need is the, the sin that we have over our lives and God rescues us from that. But there may be other things going on and you cry out right now and say, God, where are you? You can trust that God is moving because God is good and he will come and rescue, and redeem, no matter where we are. And he will use all those situations we find ourselves in, not just to bring himself glory, but to bring about good to his people, because he is good. And that's the story of what these Jews understood from the story of the Exodus to where we are today. As we get to be a people who have this great, deep, wonderful heritage of God's rescue that we need to begin to live in. And this is one of the reasons why we come to communion every week. It's a reminder of what God did to rescue us by seeking us out. And that's why you break that cracker like Christ's body was broken for us. And you dip it in the wine or the grape juice that reminds us of his blood that was shed for you and me. Because this is what it costs God to bring us back into relationship again. That it was Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus takes our sin upon himself. And that's what we remember at communion. And so we lay our whole selves down there and trust God for our rescue and our hope and our restoration to be the image bearers he calls us to in the world. The band's going to come up. As they do, I'm going to invite you to take communion. Uh, There'll be some deacons in the back, and if you need prayer, 
If you're in a place today, maybe where you're feeling like you fail God, you're not good enough, or God called you to be his image bearer and you're a terrible image bearer, welcome to the club, okay? <laughs> we're, we're just all part of that. Uh, but you, we understand also that God's rescue isn't because of what we've done. It's because of what he has done. God's rescue is what calls us back to himself because he is the one who draws us to him. We can never be good enough. We can never earn God's love in any way because it's not something that you earn. It's something that is given. And so if you feel like you're in a place today that, you know, God just can't love you or restore you or use you, they would love to pray with you about that because God can and God does. And God will bring you to himself because he's good. Uh, there's offering boxes next to every door. We give because God gave so much to us. Giving is part of our worship. We don't pass the plate. It's a response to what he has done. Uh, there is some sermon notes on the communion tables. Again, they're a little different, and they're going to hopefully walk you through a better understanding of what this looks like in your lives. Like maybe you could talk to one another about what your own personal Egypt has been or is, uh, where you keep running to bondage in places in your life, and talk to one another about the ways that we can help one another to walk through out of those places. And then uh, grab a breakfast burrito and sit, sit and talk with some other people about that today or maybe just have lunch or something this week with your gospel community or friends and begin to really understand what it means to start living out, being his image bearers in the world with the grace that he provides. Guys, God is good. God is good. And, I, and I'm really hoping the OM at you and the rest of the book of Acts, we really understand better that good news of God's rescue because we are a people who have been rescued. Let's pray. Father, this morning. I ask that you would remind us uh, daily of the grace that we have already received. Father, so often it seems like we forget all the great blessings that we already have been given. And we think we have to do all these things to get more, rather than simply resting in what has already been given to us. And I ask that as we begin to have a greater understanding of your rescue of who we are, that we wouldn't be a people who metaphorically walk around the desert saying, oh, look, we're liberated, oh, look, we're saved. But we'd understand the destiny that we're called into as image bearers. We'd understand our sentness and that we would step out into the world around us to be your hands and feet, to be you to those who do not know you, to be as Paul does throughout the book of Acts, who speaks of you in the midst of cultures and peoples who have no idea who you are and have no idea of how to even relate to you, but they see Paul's life and his words of how he trusts you and walks with you, and that we would begin to be those people as well, because we, not because we're trying harder, but because we have the foundation of understanding the good news of what you did in your death and resurrection And that that in turn changes us to be a people who live out lives of such hope and grace because of your love so freely given to us. Teach us to listen to you and your leading as you send us and to trust you in every step of our lives because you are good. And we ask all this in your son's good name. Amen.